Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Corona Chronicles. Typically I try to keep these as uplifting and positive as humanly possible, but I do want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. Today's interview is with a nurse. Her name is Elaine and she is based at a hospital in New York City. She has been a nurse for over 15 years and I thought this interview was incredibly important, but I do also feel like uh, it's important to warn you if you are in a state of mind where you feel like you're anxious and maybe a bit vulnerable to, to certain types of negative news, this might not necessarily be the episode for you, but I do feel like a lot of the information here is important and, and puts in perspective uh, some of the shortages and some of the issues that you're probably hearing about more regularly. She really takes a granular view onto the struggles that the healthcare system is dealing with right now. Uh, so without further ado, I'll, I'll let her take it away. Thanks for listening. Well, first, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Elaine Cartagena. I grew up in the Lower East Side, which is my community, and I work for a very prestigious and elite institution. I've been there for a very long time, a little over 18 years. Emergency has always been my passion. I've been an emergency nurse for the last 12 and a half, trauma nurse, and I was a paramedic before that. And right now, for the last couple of years, I've been an ear manager. Can I ask why? Uh, because it, I can't imagine it. It just seems like such a sensitive field. Um, what was it that attracted you to that work? Oh, it was, uh, it, I'll be honest, I, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And it just attracted me. I love jumping in and trying to get that pulse back and getting them performing CPR on them and trying to stabilize the patient and, you know, eventually getting them back to breathing, even if it is on a bench, but at least they're breathing. We got the pulses back, you know. Yeah. So that to me was um, big, you know, just saving lives. That's incredible. Like, first, thank you for all the work you do, not just now during this time, but also in the bigger scheme of things. Like, obviously, hospitals are just literally a place where lives are getting saved. Can you talk to me about what this time has been like for you personally and emotionally? Well, I mean, this just really hit us so fast. This came too quick. It's spreading everywhere. I mean, coronavirus cases are soaring. I mean, doctors, nurses, frontline medical workers across the board, across the U.S., you know, they're right now the biggest problem is confronting like dire shortage of masks, surgical gowns, eyewear, you know, PPE, protective personal equipment. We have nothing. It's going so fast. I mean, my biggest fears are like the dozens of our healthcare workers in my facility and across the country already have fallen ill. Mm-hmm. Hundreds have been forced to get quarantined. I'm scared. You know, I've never really felt as vulnerable as I have these last couple of weeks. Like I'm, I'm terrified. You know, I feel like it's only a matter of time before. I'm infected. And my mother, who's well over 70. It seems like in spite of that, like you're still showing up like so many are continuing to do the work. So obviously you're driven, you know, you're driven towards helping the people that are suffering from this and who are struggling during this time. I mean, I am and always will be a public servant. (laughs) You know, I love what I do and I want to help anyone I can. You know, our hospitals right now, there's a surge, like we're overwhelmed with the ICU patients, especially mm-hmm. our vented patients, our patients that are ventilators who, these are actual machines that breathe for them. 
your normal average vented patient is anywhere between three to five days before they get extubated, meaning before the tube comes out and they can breathe on their own. With COVID, the average amount of time that they're on a vent is anywhere between 11 to 21 days per person. So can you imagine, that's why we're so short, we had to open up another unit and staffing them. Right now, so many of my staff are out. I have literally 15 nurses out, 10 techs out, just scouring nurses to come pleading with them just to get people, just to have manpower because our docs are falling, you know, they're ill. And it seems like supplies are a huge issue. So we're talking in terms of supplies, we're talking about masks, obviously. Your N95s, your gowns, your face shield, Mm -hmm. your gloves, Mm -hmm. your headgear. We're talking about everything from Mm -hmm. surgical masks to extra barriers between you and the patient. Anything to like, you know, protect you because the truth is you're going in blinded like Anything can happen at any given time. Your equipment can break, but you're still there. You know, you you can't stop chest compressions. You know what I'm saying? Like if yeah. something breaks or you get splashed, you know, it is what it is. You got to keep going. You got to get that patient back. Can you put in perspective, like how often, you know, if you're on the floor as a nurse or a doctor, how often are you changing your mask or your gloves in a normal work setting? For every patient you see that required to be in isolation because they have, let's say, tuberculosis, which mm-hmm. is, you know, airborne, or anything like with droplets or with, the, or with measles. Anything that's in isolation, it's one per patient. You know, if you have to intubate that patient, once you're done and you're leaving a negative pressure room, negative pressure meaning you keep everything inside, you don't, like it doesn't blow out, once you leave and you take, you don, it's called removing all your gear. Once you remove all your gear and you throw it away and you go to the next patient, you put on a fresh new mask, you know, a new head shield, you put on eyewear, you put on your gowns, you put on your gloves. It's one per patient. Right now, the N95, which what 95 means is 95% of air is not being filtered back in, like you're able to breathe without anything penetrating. That's what 95 means. And we're holding on to these masks for a day to three days for every patient because there's nothing. We have nothing. We just got a shipment and it went so quick. It just goes. We have to hold on to these masks. And put them obviously like in a paper bag because you can't put it in plastic. And we're holding on to all of our equipment for just, we see 10 patients with COVID or 12 patients. You're wearing that same mask. This is why we're getting sick. There's obviously a lot of information and kind of misinformation about COVID. What are some things that you would like people to know? I will say for me, hearing the thing about the ventilators, that's, I've read, I, I understood it, but you just put it in, in so much perspective, understanding that recovery time and how different it is. You know, are there anything else like that? Well, ventilators really, I mean, the, the purpose of a ventilator is to maintain high oxygen levels until the lungs are able to function in a normal way again, you know, as they recover. That's Mm -hmm. basically what a vent does. It breathes 
for you, which I foresee in the next coming weeks, we're going to have such a high demand of patients that can't breathe because the experience that they're having is someone with pneumonia, when you have pneumonia, it presents on a CAT scan in one lobe, meaning one lung. And it's usually at your lower lobe. And it, it's cloudy on one. With COVID, it presents on both lobes and it looks like fireworks, white patches everywhere. And it's piercing through the lining of your air sacs. So it's making you, it's difficult for you to breathe on your own at all. It's, you can't, you're like in shortness of breath, you're hypoxic, you can't breathe. So that's the biggest reason why people come in in an emergency because they can't breathe. They can't maintain their breaths on their own. They need help. And so we give them high flow oxygen. But if that's not enough, we eventually have to intubate them, meaning put a tube down and keep their airway maintained open so they can breathe. You know, that's what we want to protect, their airway. Because mm-hmm. without an airway, you can't breathe. You're, you know, you can't <laughs> you're dead. So um, that's what, that's our biggest goal is maintaining your airway. Um, so that's the biggest thing when it comes to patients experiencing difficulty breathing. I mean, just your common symptoms that just appear within two to 14 days after exposure, you know, you're incubated to like two to 14 days is usually the time where it starts to formulate in your body, and that's when you start getting fevers and cough and shortness of breath. And some patients may experience, like, diarrhea, nausea. You know, some might experience body aches, pain, nasal congestion, sore throat, runny nose, fever. You know, these are things that they, you know, they just have trouble breathing. So the shortness of breath becomes constant. Or the biggest key is pressure in their chest, like if they're having chest pain. Because they can't breathe and they're breathing so fast that they start getting chest pain or bluish lips, like it's called cyanotic, like they turn blue. It means that you're not oxygenating. Your blood isn't oxygenating properly. So those are like some severe signs, you know. So we're trying to educate everyone. And when people come in that are asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms, but they've been exposed to someone, what we tell them is constantly wash your hands frequently, just, you know, at least for 20 seconds is usually what the CDC recommends, Center of Disease Control. They want you to wash your hands for 20 seconds because that's the best way to kill germs. You can use Purell, but the best thing is soap. Avoid touching your eyes because it is a droplet. You know, when people sneeze, um, cover your nose, cover your mouth because all it takes is that's why they have that social distancing, you know, like distance yourself because six feet, if a droplet falls within those six feet and it falls to the ground, it dies as opposed to it going in your face. All it has to do is like go into your to your eyes or to your mouth and to your nose and you're automatically get it. Plus, it's also contact touching your, you know, this is a kind of um, virus where you touch someone's hands and they touch their face, it's automatic contact. So it's droplet and contact. On a plastic, it lives for 72 hours. It lives in the air for three hours. Do you know what I'm saying? These are things that we try to tell people, avoid shaking hands, stay home as much as possible. If you feel sick, stay home. 
the older adults, we encourage them to, like, take advantage of telehealth, which is a service where they see their doctor via Skyping or on a computer so they don't have to physically come into the hospital because you're more susceptible of catching something when you do come to the ER. This is a question that I got from one of the listeners. Do you have a sense of what the lasting side effects might be and how can individuals assess the damage done to their body if they do have COVID or, or what are you seeing? Really kind of soon to know because this is still new to us. This is only my, you know, only through conversation with other physicians and maybe, you know, like some of the journals like JAMA, the cardiology magazines that come out for us just to get like information. A lot of COVID cases might cause I believe, heart problems or worsening, like, underlying issues. So if you are a diabetic, you're going to get this 10 times phobic. It's going to be harder to manage. Or hypertension, it's going to be harder to manage. You're going to have other pre-existing conditions in lieu of heart disease, in lieu of diabetes, in lieu of hypertension. But I think the one side effect might be heart problems, definitely heart problems, any cardiac injury. Is going to be like a high prevalence in patients, I believe. Just for anybody listening, I just want to clarify, this is all a little bit too soon to definitely confirm, and no one's confirmed this, but this is based on uh, Elaine's history and experience. This is what she's surmising, and obviously she has a plethora of experience, so I think it's worth listening to. Can you talk a bit about, you know, obviously there are individuals who are getting diagnosed, get tested, and then they're told to stay at home. What are the procedures that they can be doing at home to take care of themselves during this time, things that, you know, you've, you've learned? So um, there's really nothing they can do other than staying at home, cleaning with bleach, cleaning with Clorox, cleaning your surfaces. If you have to go outside for essentials, go out, come back, wear gloves. If you don't have access to an N95, um, if you don't have access to a surgical mask, Wrap and, and the CDC did say this, and it is on their website, um, because if I, I want to just put out there that if anybody needs information that is factual, the best way to get it is through the CDC and WHO, the World Health Organization, because they really provide essential information for patients, uh, for people in general, for the globe, with things that they can do. So right now, because of the shortage of, like, let's say, the mask, they're telling people if you can, you know, wrap a scarf or a bandana around your mouth just so you don't inhale anything from someone else and just a lot of distancing yourself. Just the other day, kids playing basketball, that they don't, I don't think they understand the concept. I, I just, I don't know what, what they don't get, but they're just not getting it. And those are the ones that are coming in sick. So it doesn't discriminate from the elderly. To the youngest, there is no age difference. Yes, it does hit 65 and older with underlying issues, but it also hits young people. I just lost two friends of mine, one Tuesday and one last week. And they were young. They, one was 35 and the other one was 42 and no issues. And they were exposed with the same patient, it was six of them exposed with the same patient, and, you know, they're not here. And now you can't even go to a funeral because they don't want you in groups, and you can't touch the body. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's, 
there's nothing you can really do, um, Eden. The, the truth is stay at home. That's mm-hmm. the best thing you can do. Stay at home until this pandemic is somewhat under control and it's come to, you know, a halt. I mean, I, it's going to come to a halt. We just don't know when. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, if you you are not an essential worker, if you are not one of the frontline people, if you are not uh, a police officer, if you're not a first responder, EMS, firefighter, if you're not, you know, uh, transit, if you're not an essential worker, please stay at home. Because, you know, it, all, all it takes is for you to get it. And for every one out of six people, I want to say one out of six people, one out of five people get sick. And all they do is it multiplies. You know, it just multiplies to spread. New York has the highest infected population because it's such a dense community. You know what I mean? So we are really, um, you know, we're, we're interconnected. We're close. You know, you sit on the bus together. You sit on the train together. You, you shop in the same places together. Like, it's, it's so dense. It's, you know, it's all walks of life come to New York City. So that's why I say just go outside, get what you need to get, and come straight home. When did you first hear about the coronavirus? Not necessarily the first case in your hospital, but like when did you get a whiff of it on the internet or even just like the talks of it? So for us, it was, you know, you know, it started in China and Wuhan, you know, yeah. um, it started there mm-hmm. and it just spread quickly. And I mean, then it just came into the U.S. And towards the end of February, beginning of March is when I really like said, oh, wow, this is, this is real. You know, it's coming yeah. here. And, yeah. and I and I said it, you know, my coworkers and I said it. I said it's only time before before it hits us. And then when you know when we found out that in Washington they had their first case, and then it was in Illinois, and then you know in Chicago we had a, another case, and then it came to New York when we had one case in Westchester. And I said it's only time. And how many people are walking out there with it? And we don't know. You know, we yeah. don't know because some people don't show symptoms. You know, they're touching everything and they, you know, the train systems, just MTA, you, you never saw them cleaning them, cleaning the machines and the turnstiles so vigorously like they're doing now, like they show on TV, like they're cleaning everything from top to bottom. You've never seen that. You've never seen that. It's yeah. real. And people just, I don't think that they understand how real it is until they come into the hospital and they see their loved ones, you know, they don't understand, oh, they're, they're coming in for a cough or they're coming in with fever. And lo and behold, they're not leaving. They're not intubated. And they're on the floor and they're in an ICU room and they're dead, you know, like three days later. And I've already seen it where the family member is like, I don't understand what just happened. And I'm like, you need to quarantine because you're exposed, you know, and then we get a CT and then, yeah, you know, she is positive And now... You know, so I, I learned about this in March. Sorry, I just went off topic, but I learned about this in March. It just started spreading like wildfire, I mean. Yeah, and just to put the timeline in perspective, so that I, uh, my, the first guest on the podcast is a, uh, a teacher in, uh, for ESL, so she teaches online to, to students in China. So China was closed on lockdown. There, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I know it was closed definitely on Chinese New Year. 
So Wuhan was already shut down. So from January 25th, and then we started getting news here, I feel like around mid to late February. That's why I'm saying like towards the end of February is when I yeah. kind of started, like, I guess, you know, it's not something that we've never dealt with something like this before. This yeah. has never happened before. I mean, the last real case was Ebola. You know, and that was deadly, but not as severe. But the the one thing about Ebola is if once you have it, you know, you're immune to it, right? So you you can go back and be around other people that have Ebola and not catch it again and not be sick. It's Mm -hmm. like you're already, it's almost like you're inoculated. You know what I mean? You're, You're immune. I don't know. And this is the question that we keep going back and forth. And everyone asks, and, and I ask too, because I, I'm not certain on this part. Once you've been exposed to COVID, you know, and you've had, you know, and you've had exposure and you're positive, do you get it again? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, yeah. it's like the flu. Like, let's say the flu, you get, you get the flu shot and you get the flu, you do get it. You know, you get the H1N1, you know, there's different strains of flu. You got flu A, flu B, influenza A, influenza B, and you can't keep getting it, even mm-hmm. if you've, you've had it before. So is that the same with COVID? Because mm-hmm. COVID is more deadly. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Everyone asks, well, if I've been exposed, can I get it again? And you may not have any symptoms now and get it again and be really symptomatic, be really sick. You know, like your whole kidney function could shut down, your immune system can shut down, anything can happen. There's like, I really believe like, you know, us talking about it where there was an article in the Journal of Medicine where it said, and that's why I was giving you that little tidbit of information that the side effects, the long-term effects could be coronary because, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to affect the heart. So if it affects the heart, it'll affect the kidneys. We already know that, you know, COVID can affect the kidneys. And cause kidney disease. We already know that. You know, just to to start wrapping it up, just to your point. I mean, I think it's uh, if it isn't obvious from from everything you're seeing on the news and everything you're reading about headlines from around the world, take the time and listen to this. Stay home. Stay. Uh, start your self isolation process. Wait till this levels out. Let's help all do what we can to help flatten the curve. So nurses like Elaine and all of the you know all of the people working in the medical profession let's do what we can to make their job a little bit easier by at least uh, reducing the spread of this virus definitely take the time to go to the two sites that Elaine mentioned which is the CDC and the WHO just to get a sense of of what those facts are just affirm again like some of the stuff that we were talking about is speculation but again this is based on her history as a medical professional so take it with that weight but I would encourage you to stay informed, uh, stay safe, and continue to protect yourself. Elaine, thank you so much for for taking the time to you talk to me. Welcome. And just to put this in perspective, it's March 27th, and it's 1038 at night. And Elaine texted me and really wanted to, to do this because she is very concerned about what she's seeing. And she's lost friends and just is like everyone else really wanting to see this at least start to reduce the rates of those cases that we're seeing. So let's do what we can and help her out. Uh, thanks so much, Elaine. Thank you, Eden. And, you know, stay safe, everyone. Stay home. Stay safe.